Welcome to the City Collective Church Podcast. We believe we are better together and exist to create space for everyone to discover life in Jesus. We hope that in today's message, you encounter the heart of God and are challenged and inspired in your relationship with Christ. Hey, good morning, everybody. Really glad that you're able to join us here, wherever you're watching from. Uh, my name is Neil, and it is my privilege today to study and open and teach the Bible. I love teaching the Bible. I love reading the Bible. The Bible's a lot of things, folks. I mean, sometimes the Bible to me is an encouragement. Sometimes it's a correction. Sometimes it's a warning. Sometimes it's a blessing. Sometimes it's inspiring. Sometimes it's kind of intimidating. And, and that's why we should all read it, and that's why we should read it a lot because there's a lot there and it speaks to us. So today, we're gonna continue the series on James chapter four, uh, verses one to 10. And and to me, this scripture is really like a mirror. I want us to look at it like a mirror because it's gonna tell us the truth about ourselves and why we do what we do. So Cheryl's gonna come and read the first 10 verses of James chapter four. Hi everybody. James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you can't get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That's why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Thanks. Hey, so James just jumps right in and asks a really good question. Where do your quarrels and where do your fights come from? Okay, let's stop there. Where do they come from? I was reflecting on this as I worked on the text, and I was thinking of how I grew up. I have one older brother and one older sister, and I know where a lot of our quarrels and fights came from, and that's because it was so unfair in my house, right? My, my siblings always got easier chores. They always got more favors. Uh, they got to do things that I wasn't able to do because I was the youngest, and this really bugged me. And one of the perennial quarrels we had was whenever our family went on vacation. We lived in Calgary at the time, and uh, my dad's family was in Manitoba, so we'd take these long car trips across the prairies, and they were long. And uh, we would always have the same quarrel about where we were going to sleep in the car on these long trips. So here's a picture of the car, because some of you can't fathom this. You know, I mean, you're driving a Honda Fit or something like that. You can't imagine this. So here's a Mercury Monarch 1960. We actually owned a car like this. It was a different color. Massive car. Huge car. 25 liters to every 100 kilometers. I mean, unbelievable gas guzzler. That's the way cars used to be. And here's a picture of the back seat. And here was the dilemma. The best place to sleep, in my judgment, was in the wheel wells, just below the seat. 
you'd fill the low spots with sleeping bags and coats, and then you just have this unbelievable cozy place to sleep. The next best place to sleep was on the bench seat. See how big that is? It's like a sofa, for crying out loud. It's like a sofa in your car. And my sister often got to sleep there because she liked that one. And so what I would do, and you could just see it in the corner of the picture up top, I would sleep on the back shelf behind the back seat where the window sloped down. Now, a lot of you can't fathom this, and you're going like, where's the seat belts, and where's the, where's the car seats? Well, they were nowhere, friends. This is the way we traveled. It's just people in a can driving across the road. And, and this is how I lived. And I always hated, because I had to sleep up there. Not just because it was the most dangerous place, obviously, if you were in an accident, but it was so hot up there. Sun would come through the glass, and you know, just like a greenhouse. Anyway, don't need to relive my childhood. But we even have quarrels about this. Now, Cheryl and I, we do uh, marriage education full-time for the last 15 years. We've been married for 43 years. We know a little bit about the quarrels and fights couples can have, right? And it's usually something like, oh, man, she makes me crazy. He makes me crazy. He spends too much. She's too cheap. He or she talks too much. He or she wants to go, 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 do, do, do things all the time. He or she just wants to sit home. You know, I mean, they have quarrels and fights all the time. Now, what's consistent here is all these quarrels and fights, according to us, are somebody else's fault. It's my siblings. It's my spouse. External circumstances, that's what causes the quarrels and fights. And James steps in and says something completely different. It's a stunning comment, and we need to look in the mirror. He says, you know those quarrels and fights? It's you. It's me. It's us. Those quarrels and fights come from inside. That's something we got to wrestle with. There was a very uh, well-known British uh, writer and philosopher in the early 20th century named G.K. Chesterton. And uh, the London Times wrote an article, the title of which was, What's Wrong with the World? Here's what G.K. Chesterton wrote. He wrote a letter to the editor and he said, Dear sir, I am. Friends, this is what's wrong. This is what James is saying, what's wrong. James is saying it's our differences, and here's the different translations. Uh, it's our selfish desires, it's our cravings, it's our pleasures, it's our passions, it's our lusts. One version said it's our concupiscences. I didn't even know what that was. I had to look it up so you can too. Here's how I would put it. It's our divided hearts. We live with divided hearts. And it creates such tension and such friction and then manifests in our relationships. Now, James goes after this pretty hardcore. And some of the language I found actually quite shocking. Like in verse 4, he says, you adulterers. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Like that's a serious word, right? An adulterer? But that's what he says to those of us who live with divided hearts. To be an adulterer is to be an unreliable or an inconsistent partner, right? It's to make promises that we fail to live up to. And when you start thinking about it that way, you go, yeah, that's probably me. That's probably me in, in my relationship to God. He goes on in verse 4, he says, you are enemies of God. Well, that's pretty intense. Like, I'm not an enemy of God. It's pretty intense. Like, I'm not an enemy of God. Sounds excessive, right? But he's working on the same concept of being faithful or unfaithful. If you're not fully faithful to God, then you're an enemy of God. Let's go back to the relationship of being faithful or unfaithful. If you're not fully faithful to God, then you're an enemy of God. 
Let's go back to the relationship thing. Maybe this makes more sense. So in August 12th, 1978, Cheryl and I got married in a church about two kilometers from where we're standing right now. So uh, Aaron, you're getting married in a couple weeks. But so we did 43 years ago. We have God. Let's go back to the relationship thing. Maybe this makes more sense. So in August 12th, 1978, Cheryl and I got married in a church about two kilometers from where we're standing right now. So uh, Aaron, you're getting married in a couple weeks. But so we did 43 years ago. We got married almost 43 years ago. So what if I told you that, or I told Cheryl a few months after we got married, like, I kind of would like to start dating other women again. You go, what? <laughs> Are you completely nuts? <laughs> that's what Cheryl would say. That's what you should be saying. See, that's not what marriage is. See, marriage, it intrinsically means you say no to everybody else. You can't say, well, no, 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 we'll still be married. I just want to be connected to all these other women. That's not what that kind of commitment means. And it's the same thing in James. He's pressing us here. Like, if you say yes to God, it's such a deep uh, commitment. It's such an encompassing commitment. It's like you have to be enemies. You have to say no to every other priority. There can only be one first priority in our lives, right? So I think that's why James comes on so strong in his language. Now, please understand, this isn't a power play. Uh, James isn't saying, and you shouldn't read this text, it's like, you know, God controls us. And, and the text does use the word jealous. God is jealous for the spirit that he put within us. But it's not jealous in some kind of stalker movie kind of jealous. It's a word that's trying to describe a love so great. All it wants is you. A love that's so great, it gives itself completely to you and wants that kind of complete commitment back. See, that's the heart of a great marriage, and that's what James is talking about, that we would be so committed. We'd be as committed to God as God is committed to us. So, so when we look in the Scripture, what James is doing here is he's calling out our divided hearts. And I think this is a really good word, not just for me personally or for us personally. It's a really good word for our times have you, have you heard, paid attention, uh, you know, some celebrity, somebody in the news, somebody in the public eye does something that's out of bounds, and then they'll say this, that's not who I am. Have you heard that? I've heard that. Listen for it. Start listening for it. When people make apologies and they're trying to walk back their behavior, that, that's not who I am. And I go, eh, I'm pretty sure that was you in that video. I'm pretty sure that was you who said that. I'm pretty sure that was you who did that. Here's the truth. Now, that's not all they are. Even when people do really horrible things, that's probably not all they are. They've probably done some good things in their life, too. We just live with divided hearts. And this is what James is trying to convince us of and lead us away from. And you don't need to feel bad about it. You don't, in some kind of hopeless way, the greatest, arguably the greatest Christian in the first century the Apostle Paul said, you know what? When I try to do what's right, I end up failing. When I try not to do what's wrong, I end up doing it anyhow. Who can set me free? This is the dilemma of everybody. How do I live with this divided heart? How do I live into what I want to be and what God wants us to be? And James has got good news. Here's the key. Here's the word. Here's the word in the heart of this text, I think. Humility. God gives grace to the humble. When we submit, or I like the word surrender, it's another way to translate. When we surrender to God, really good things 
start to happen. Look in the text. God gives grace, it says in verse 6. That means he gives kindness that we don't deserve. We haven't earned it. He just gives it when we're humble and we surrender to him. It says God comes close to us. And we're no longer enemies. We're no longer at a distance. He comes close to us. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, you are my friends. No longer enemies. Jesus says, you're my friends. And in other places in the scripture, it says we become sons and daughters. Man, that's good. That's good news. But first, we have to surrender and submit and confess our divided hearts. And then verse 10, that passage ends up with that incredible text. It says, and then God will lift us up. So bad news, we live with divided hearts. Good news, God can heal him. God wants to heal him. I'm going to just say three things in the last part of this message. Three really practical things about how we can move into healing for our divided hearts. The first thing is this. It starts with humility. And it's not just humility in our human relationships. That's a good virtue. That is a really good virtue. But, but what we really are talking about in this text is humility before God. Eugene Peterson has a wonderful rendition of the, of the Bible in the New Testament called The Message. And here's how he uh, renders verse 10. Get down on your knees before the master. It's the only way you'll get on your feet. Isn't that good? Get down on your knees before the master. That's humility. It's the only way you'll get on your feet. See, the opposite of humility is pride, right? And verse 6 says God opposes the pride. It doesn't just say God's, you know, pride's not, not a nice thing and try to avoid pride. If you want God to oppose you, well, then embrace your pride. That's harsh. <laughs> I don't want God to oppose me. Now, God's not being mean. God wants to turn us around. If God opposes us in our pride and God allows things to happen to us because of our pride, it's because he wants us to turn back and be reunited, to be reconciled to him. He's not being mean. It's because he loves us. Now, I think pride keeps a lot of us from God. I think pride keeps a lot of us from God, particularly maybe in the Western world. I think there's a huge amount of intellectual pride that keeps people from God. I know I've seen this in my own life. People, people define God according to their ability to understand or explain God, and then that God is so small they don't submit or worship him. You understand that? We describe God with, with our limited human terms, and then we go, oh, if that's what God is, I'll just ignore him. Here's what we need to understand, friends. God isn't just bigger than we think. God is bigger than we can think. Okay? God's not just bigger than we think. God's bigger than we can think. And so when we can't explain God, when we feel God doesn't make sense to us, the problem isn't with God. The problem is I'm too limited. I don't know enough. And in fact, I must humble myself and say, you know what? I'll never know enough. Now, we can seek more knowledge. That's good. St. Augustine famously said, faith seeks understanding. So by all means, study and think and discuss. Absolutely, there's great things to learn. But humble yourself and know this. You will never be able to explain God or understand God fully. There will come a moment when we need to hit our knees and just say, God, you are God. That's, I think, what James is really pushing us here about the humility there's some things, um, even as Christ followers, 
our pride keeps us from uh, living undividedly. Uh, we follow Jesus as far as we can explain him. We follow Jesus as far as it makes sense. I, I was just thinking about an example, and, and I came up with this one. Luke chapter 6, Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. Well, that's stupid, right? From a human perspective, that's just plain dumb. How about look out for yourself? Uh, protect yourself. Make sure you don't get taken advantage of. So we're at war with, you know, this way of thinking, and then God comes in and teaches us something else. Will we submit to it? Will we say, this doesn't actually make sense to me, but I will surrender to it? This is at the heart of what this text is about. And it's challenging, isn't it? All right. Uh, you know, I, I just got to confess, too, I... Um, I've studied at two different seminaries in North America, and I just say North America because Western, the Western take on theology is really different than many places. So I studied at two different seminaries, and in both cases they offer courses called systematic theology. And quite often the, the prime professor teaches systematic theology. When I was at Regent College, it was J.I. Packer at the time, and you know, well-known, well-respected person teaching systematic theology. And, and I took those courses, and I'm glad I did, and I learned a lot. But I got to tell you, at this stage in my life, as a follower of Jesus and as, a, as somebody who's trying to serve him, I've come to realize some of our preoccupation with systematizing God is trying to tame him, trying to control him, trying to manipulate him so that we can make our lives a certain way. By all means, study systematic theology, but understand once again, when systematic theology reaches its limits, God goes on infinitely. All right. We'll move on. But uh, actually, when I was praying about this this morning, it just came to me. So I, I think I need to say this for some of us. There's another element of pride that will keep us from God, and it's this. I am such a big sinner. I'm such a big loser. I have rejected God for so long that he can't forgive me, that he won't take me back. And that's a weird kind of pride, isn't it? And I guess I just want to say, this scripture is 100% right. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. God will give grace to the humble. No matter where you've come from, no matter what your background, okay? That's good news. Hey, second thing, humility, then confession. Uh, uh, when Cheryl was reading that even this morning, I thought, man, verse 9 seems kind of weird, doesn't it? It says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Nobody puts that up on their Instagram, do they? You know, like that's not a little inspiring verse to start your day with. Be wretched and mourn. I, I think what we're talking about here is, it's, again, it's an extension of this humility thing. It's confessing that we need to be forgiven that I have fallen short in so many ways and I need to honestly own that. Cleanse your hearts, purify your hands, you double-minded. It even says it in the text. I've been talking about a divided heart. It even says you double-minded. We're divided. I think we've got a slide. A uh, Danish philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard said this. It's so good. The book's good, but even if you just remember the title, purity of heart is to will one thing. Purity of heart is to will one thing. 
to heal these divisions, to be not disintegrated, but integrated. I think our whole life is this pros around God and in our relationships. Here's a prayer that I pray one way or another. These aren't the exact words I pray, but I pray this so many times. God, please forgive my sins. Heal my divided heart. I want to live fully for you and you alone. I need your help. I commend that to you. I pray that every day. It puts me in right posture with God. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope it challenged, encouraged, and inspired you in your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. To keep up with City Collective, make sure to check us out on Instagram and Facebook at City Collective Church. Have a great week.